Major League Baseball is finally back. As the new season gets underway, the Ringer Podcast Network has baseball fans covered with the other podcast I host for the Ringer, the Ringer MLB Show, which is playing exclusively on TuneIn for the month of April. On top of that, the Ringer Podcast Network has partnered with TuneIn to give baseball fans a free 60-day trial of TuneIn Premium to listen to every live home call from every MLB game around the league. Catch the Ringer MLB Show only on TuneIn for free during April. You can download it or stream it with the TuneIn app, or you can stream it at TuneIn.com slash Ringer. And with your free trial for the Premium subscription, you can listen to live MLB games on TuneIn. Just go to TuneIn.com slash Ringer to subscribe and download the TuneIn app and start listening today. TuneIn, your everything audio app. Hello and welcome to Achievement Oriented, Ringer's official video game podcast. My name is Ben Lindbergh. I'm a writer for The Ringer and still en route to Los Angeles, taking a pit stop in a depressing casino with slot machines. It's my colleague, Jason Concepcion. Hi, Jason. Hi. uh, I'm in a room where I would estimate approximately 25 murders have taken place. (laughs) As long as it's not your murder, that's not your problem. There's a scuff mark on the wall that I think is like a shoe of a person who's like their corpse was dragged off the bed. (laughs) Well, you've had some harrowing experiences on your journey so far. It sounds like a Last of Us-like transit (laughs) of the country. Yes. But you are almost at the end of your journey. This is your your final save point. So today we are talking about Japanese games, first two specific ones. We're going to bring in our colleague and friend, Justin Charity, to tell us about Nier Automata, which he has been beating and playing for some time now, as well as Persona 5, which just came out this week, giant JRPG that he is diving into also. So he's going to tell us about those games. And then we're going to talk to Chris Kohler from Kotaku about Japanese games in general, what distinguishes them from Western games and how the two design philosophies are converging. Quickly, before we get to that, first thing, Mass Effect, we did it. It's getting patched. All of our complaints have been answered. It needs a patch. It does. Not all of our complaints have been answered. There's a, a big patch that will be out by the time you're hearing this. They're fixing the facial animations and a lot of other minor things. But I opened up the patch notes and I control F'd for scan, which was our big problem with the the game. All of the the incessant scanning of objects in the environment doesn't appear as if that has been addressed in any way. But it's a positive sign, probably, that a lot of the complaints people had have led to action already with more to come. And that's how video games work now. They come out and then you make them good. I'm shaking with the the realization of our power right now. I know. It was only us saying those things about Mass Effect and Andromeda. And when we started this podcast last year, we never just sort of explained who we are as gamers and what our favorite games are and what kind of games we like. And hopefully that has come across in the episodes that we've done so far. But I thought just to establish where we are on the gamer spectrum, there is a survey you can take that was designed by a pair of longtime game researchers. You can find it at apps.quanticfoundry.com and it's a a gamer motivation profile. It's just a five-minute survey and you answer a a bunch of questions, basically how important are various aspects of games to you? Do you care about achievements? Do you care about getting everything and and 100%ing everything? Do you like story? Do you like action? 
And we've both taken this and we have not shared our results yes. with each other. And I'm, I'm curious because I suspect that we will do very differently on this yes. thing, even though we tend to like the same games, at least when we both play the same games, we have agreed on them thus far. But I guess there are areas of our gaming life that we don't share necessarily. <laughs> so I am completely unsurprised, I think, by my results. What about you? Okay, I am mostly unsurprised. So there are six categories and you get a percentile grade in each of them, which tells you where you rank among all the people who have taken the survey. The higher the number, the more you value that aspect of gaming. So we've got immersion, action, social, creativity, achievement, and mastery. So what's your number one category? What's your highest percentile rank? Social, 98%, and then action, 91%, which I think is, uh, I'm not surprised by that i've you know my my favorite the games that keep me coming back are always the kind of multiplayer experiences and i enjoy talking with people talking to my team doing raids things of that nature so i'm not surprised by this uh, interesting pretty much at all yeah i am i'm 21 in social which is not surprising to me either because i play mostly single player games or when i do play multiplayer games i tend not to get hooked on them forever I'm a 43 in action, so not far from average. I like action, but I'm not quite as action-oriented. My number one category by far is immersion. I'm an 83 in immersion, which I think is mostly just storytelling and how plot-driven and character-driven are you. Are you in this for the story and to find out what happens, or are you in it for the action? So I'm definitely closer to the immersion end of the scale. And... I just barely rate in any of the other categories. I'm <laughs> just like, I'm an 11% in achievement, which I think we have to rename the podcast at this point, <laughs> depending on what your achievement score is. What's I'm, your a 50, I'm a 56. I'm, yeah, okay. I've, never been, I've never been a complete achievement, you know, find all the, the Easter eggs kind of person. No, and I'm not anywhere close to that, clearly. So I guess we can still keep calling ourselves achievement-oriented since you're above the 50% the mark. But I am a 4% in creativity, which wow. is embarrassing because I like to think I'm a creative person, but I don't even know exactly what that means in games. I, I do like that kind of thing in games, but evidently my answers don't reflect that. I'm a 9% in mastery. <laughs> so I, I don't care about mastery at all. I can be bad at games, I guess. So I'm just like a immersion and a little bit of action. And that's evidently all I need in video games. Yeah, I got a um, 54 in creativity. And there's two parts of that. There's discovery and design. I'm at 75%. So that's finding outfits and looks for your avatar, oh. getting different weapons and things like that. And that's, that is stuff that I really like. I, I do like, I spend a lot of time like dressing my characters. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do not. My, my real life fashion, which is sweatpants, dawn till dusk kind of carries over into my video game dressing habits. So this was enlightening. We are, are very different, even though we share a lot of opinions when it comes to playing the same games. So you can check this out. Again, it's apps.quanticfoundry.com. It's fun. It seems to capture our habits pretty well. So let's leave it there. And Jason, why don't you welcome our first guest? And now we are joined by Justin Charity, who is a staff writer at The Ringer, who is going to be fired as soon as he's done recording this podcast uh, on Ben and I's authority. He's uh, here to talk about two really critically lauded Japanese 
video games near Automata and Persona 5. Justin, how's it going? How's it going, guys? I'm good. I'm, I'm hour three of hour 100 into Persona 5, so I'm feeling really optimistic today, I gotta say. <laughs> Begun your life's work. <laughs> have you gone to school and stuff in the game? Listen, man, I have a uniform. I've been to school. I've been late to school a couple times. It happens, you know. <laughs> We've all been there. Yeah. So this is your first Persona experience, right? So yes. I, I know, Jason, you plan to play it. I plan to be guilty about not playing it because I know that I'm just too intimidated to embark on that sort of journey. But give us just the brief rundown, the premise, what you've seen so far. Well, it's okay. So the setup, but by the way, I will say that it is the most immediately engrossing game I've played in a very long time. In so yeah. much as like the first, you know, the first scene is like a kid in a mask at the scene of a casino heist. Mm -hmm. And it's very disorienting and, and glitzy and bizarre. And, but otherwise, you know, apart from said casino heist, you know, the first few hours of the game are just getting the lay of the land in Tokyo and, going to school you're a high school student and you're fraternizing with other high school students you are in the great tradition of a lot of japanese youth art you are a transfer student <laughs> which is a good <laughs> japanese story trope um, but uh yeah so you know you spend the beginning of the game sort of getting settled into like a temporary residence in tokyo and exploring shibuya you actually have to take the subway you have to take the subway in the game and I went to Tokyo a few months ago, and I will say it's not just a sort of like you go to subway stations in Persona 5 and it's like automated scenes. They make you navigate <laughs> the Tokyo subway system. <laughs> it's actually pretty tedious, but in a very in a very charming way. Do you have to fight to fit onto the train during rush hour? Yeah, it's like you have to sprint. You have to it's it's actually kind of obnoxious because you know the Japanese, the Tokyo subway people queue in line. They don't do the whole like everybody squeeze in, they queue in line. But your character, you just sort of cut to the front of the line to squeeze on the train, which is pretty <laughs> rude, to be honest with you. Yeah. <laughs> and what's the gameplay breakdown? I mean, it's largely story-based, obviously, but when it comes to actual combat or the meat and potatoes of the gameplay? Well, it's a sort of night and day, like, because you're a high school student, you actually have to go to school and you, you have to eavesdrop on people gossiping and you have to go to class and your teacher asks you obnoxious questions about Socrates but during the sort of <laughs> I mean, that's a real thing that happens in the game. But, you know, after school hours, nighttime hours that are more of the elements. I, I don't want to spoil too much of the plot, but there's why you're making friends in high school. You're sort of exploring this this strange world that let's just say offers a lot of opportunities for combat and it's a turn-based combat system there may be a talking cat involved it's a really beautiful turn-based combat system with really bright popping menus it's it's just a very lively colorful game that is way more lively than what it sounds like when i say that it's a game where you have to meticulously navigate the subway and answer literal pop <laughs> right. questions that you answered in high school <laughs> yeah. Is this dredging up positive memories for you? Do you have good associations with high school or is this more of a traumatic thing that you're reliving? Well, it's weird. It's, I, you know, I, I like the dynamic and find it very charming, even though the, I will say the tone of the game is actually kind of initially it's it's pretty pessimistic about high school. It's weird. The, the game itself is by no means a glamorization of high school. It's actually the game opens with a lot of skepticism of adults and skepticism of teachers at the school and the teachers and the, the sort of adult characters in the game 
aren't the nicest or most forgiving people in the world um, with regards to the protagonist or some of the early friends that he makes in the game. Mm -hmm. This game came out this week, so we can have you back on in a couple months when you're, you know, a quarter of the way through it, and we'll see how you feel about it then. But but Near Automata came out about a month ago, which is roughly how long it's taken me to learn to pronounce it Near Automata instead of Nier Automata. I'm playing it now. I'm really enjoying it, but I'm not very far into it. And you have beaten it, I don't know, several times, right? So can you uh, set this one up for, for people? Yeah, sure. Well, so Near Automata, right? You You play as an android. You're on Earth, but you're on a future earth let's put it like that and you're you know the android you play is like a a member of an elite force of androids that are think of like a paramilitary group of androids that are basically reclaiming earth from um this overwhelming colony of of robots Mm -hmm. um robots who are all kind of short and stout and a little dumb (laughs) but have sort of overrun this entire human city ruin and you spend a lot of time in this ruin and sort of on the outskirts of this this particular metropolitan ruin. And a lot of the game, I mean, you know, I don't want to talk about the story so much just because it, the story is honestly pretty convoluted. We're talking about a story that is that basically reduces to androids versus robots versus aliens versus alien androids, not to be confused with human androids. <laughs> and so it gets a little convoluted after a point. But, you know, my favorite element of the game is that you sort of just spend a lot of time exploring these beautiful ruins and sort of you're fighting with these robots, but the robots that you you come across are all very strange and they sort of mimic human behavior. And I would say like past a certain point in the game, you sort of realize that Nier Automata is a weird exercise in sociology and reflection about human behavior, but by way of a game that has very few human characters. It's all very interesting, but <laughs> a bit a bit strange until you get to ending like C, I want to say, <laughs> to, to process what's happening. Without giving away too much about um, the multiple endings, about the, the content of them, yeah. what's the scope of those endings? How does a player access each one of them? And how do they kind of like, uh, what makes near the kind of game that would make you want to play all the endings. I played lots of games with lots of different kinds of endings, but a lot of times I finish the game and that's it. I don't really care if I see the super great ending, you know what I mean? Well, okay, so Nier is a, is a very mischievous game. Toward that, I'll say that I actually got the first ending of Nier accidentally because there's this one prompt. I want to say maybe a few hours into the game where you're in a village and you're supposed to respond to a thing, like a loud noise that just happened. And I was kind of like turned around and I ran down the wrong path and I ran far enough that the screen faded to black and I got, I think it was ending H. <laughs> and it's sort of like, there are a few of the endings that are jokey that if you just do a dramatically wrong thing, the game will sort of punish you and be like, okay, well, that's it. And and then you wandered in the wrong direction forever after and then never finished the plot of the story. <laughs> um, but otherwise, like, it's basically there are a few main endings and it's they're not super counterintuitive to find or anything. You sort of the first playthrough of the game is ending A. Um, and it's a, a straightforward like you just follow the core beats of the game and you'll get ending A. And then there are basically storylines for the characters that are the secondary characters to the, the initial protagonist, the Android 2B. And you sort of shift perspective, you shift points in the timeline of the initial storyline. 
And that's where those other endings come into play is basically when you shift perspective and when you shift the timeline of the game a little bit. That's different because a lot of the time the alternate endings will just be one cutscene that's different. It's the good ending instead of the bad ending. Or, you know, you'll start a, a new game plus where you can just replay the whole thing, but you keep all your stuff and you're powerful or something like that. And that doesn't often make me want to go through it over and over and over again. But this sounds like something not only am I really just enjoying the action and the shooting and the movement and the music, which I know you really like a lot, too. But this sounds like something that would keep me coming back regardless. Oh, for sure. I mean, I will say the main endings of the game. Let's put it like this. You, If you got ending E of the game without having gotten ending A, you would be confused. <laughs> so, I mean, the endings aren't just sort of, um, you know, binary choice that happens at the end determines X, Y, or Z. It's more like, I'd say they're compounding endings. There's an ending of the game that feels like, oh, okay, I beat this, you know, boss, whatever. And then the game ends. But then it's basically like the story sort of spirals out a little bit. And it becomes less of a, a game about specifically the main protagonist to be. And it becomes a game that really is about the core cast of characters of like, I'd say five or six characters. And you wrote something for our site about one particular boss fight and it's difficulty, but also the way that the music really helps set the scene. So I, is it just that the score is nice to listen to or is it more than that? Is there more of a, a dynamic relationship where it will respond to the action in satisfying ways? Yeah, I mean, the, the piece I wrote for The Ringer about there's a boss named Soshi that's in an abandoned factory level. And that's a case where there's a specific choreography to the music cues that's just sort of great because it's like music cues synced to a power outage and some other things that are happening in the background. But I would say overall, I mean, it's funny that the soundtrack for Nier only came out I want to say last week, even though the game's been out for a while now. And I was I was like riding around on my bike this afternoon <laughs> listening to the Nier Automata OST. <laughs> um, but, be, you know, it's this game that like there's a lot of combat. You fight a lot with giant broadswords and lasers and whatnot. But so much of the game is you really do spend frolicking through fields and frolicking through deserts looking for items and sort of observing quirky robots who dress up as clowns and occupy a theme park and think that they're human theme park attendants. And it, a lot of the music is honestly very like airy and whimsical and has these dwarfish falsetto lyrics and chanting and I find the soundtrack to be pretty cute and a big part of why I can just sort of like midnight on a Wednesday, just kick back and like do some side quest that I forgot to do and just zone out <laughs> playing near near even after I've gotten like, I want to say nine of the endings so far. <laughs> you need to calm down, Justin. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> one of the things that I keep reading about this game and, and people keep saying about this game is the kind of overall feeling of sadness. Do you feel that way about the game? And how is it that the game generates this? Yes. Okay. So let's talk about this, right? Because, and, and again, it's a thing that threw me off about the game just because the premise is so centered around the idea that you're playing as an android who's like a military android who's supported by other android and you're fighting these like very rusty, clunky robots. 
And you know what I, I think what it really is, is that it, it is a game that very much so becomes about the humans who are absent from the game. Because, I mean, it's it's a basically a post-apocalyptic narrative, right? Like, and this isn't really spoiling anything. But it's a post-apocalyptic narrative. And, you know, the androids are basically working on behalf of, like, the last colonies of humanity to recapture human territory from these robots that are sort of programmed by an, an invading alien force, et cetera, et cetera. And so again, there are not a lot of humans in the environments that you're exploring, but the androids that you're playing as grapple with hints of human emotion. You know, even strange things like um, one of the characters, 9S, goes by a nickname, Nines, and the the main character 2B is like, what is a nick? Like, why do you have a nickname? You're a robot. <laughs> and it's a thing that she refuses to call him by his nickname Nines and just calls him 9S. And it's like these little ticks in the beginning of the game of like, why are these robots acting like humans? Why are these androids acting like humans? Why are the aliens who are sort of behind the curtain? Why are they so obsessed with human knowledge about food? There's an alien in the game who doesn't have to eat food that's just not how their metabolism works but they sort of make a habit of eating apples and they don't really understand why they're compelled to do this <laughs> and all of these things start as quirks but as the game progresses and the endings sort of play out the game basically becomes about it's basically turning the idea on the head of like what if sentient robots rise up and kill all the humans and it's sort of asking a different question of like what if sentient robots are doomed because one day they'll just start acting like humans and have all of the flaws that humans have. That's sort of the overarching, I think, conceit of the game. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to getting to at least one ending of this game, maybe more. And now from talking about two specific Japanese games, we're going to zoom out a bit and talk about all the Japanese games and the state <laughs> of Japanese gaming as a whole. So we'll be right back with Chris Kohler from Kotaku. All right, so we are now crossing off another space on our Kotaku bingo card and bringing in new Kotaku features editor, longtime writer for Wired, host of the Good Job Brain pub trivia podcast, and most relevant to our purposes today, the author of Power Up, How Japanese Video Games Gave the World an Extra Life, which got a new revised and expanded edition just last year. It's Chris Kohler. Hey, Chris. Hello. How's it going? We brought you on today to tell us about Japanese video games. We've just been talking about a couple of Japanese video games, but we wanted to have you give us a, a primer of sorts. When someone says Japanese video games, aside from the fact that we're talking about games developed in Japan usually, although not always, as you will maybe point out in a second, what does that mean to you or to most people? What are the hallmarks <laughs> of Japanese game design? Well, I can't speak for most people, and it's really difficult to say, you know, to, to, to make a blanket statement that encompasses everything. Uh, mm -hmm. Certainly, I can say in the in the book you referenced, Power Up, which I wrote back in 2004, one of the things I really wanted to talk about was that the one of the major contributions of Japanese game developers was the addition of what I called cinematic elements of video games. We started with uh, Donkey Kong and talking about how that was one of the earliest, you know, probably the earliest attempt to create a video game where in which a story played out using the the graphics of the video game and so if you look at donkey kong 
you actually see cinematic you see cutscenes in donkey kong they're very small but they're there and you don't really see this in arcade games prior to get a, a game that has a, a complete beginning middle end story that's told with the game graphics and so that i felt was this watershed moment and then i think if you started to look across the next you know 10 20 years of japanese gaming history you saw this big push from you know not only nintendo but I mean, one of the other big companies I talked about was Squaresoft or, you know, Square Enix, the idea that they would continually push really hard to try to make these games that felt like movies, essentially. And so, and that was kind of like one of the really big contributions to Japanese games and what people started learning from Japanese game development at that time. Um, of course, mm-hmm. there's there's so many other facets. There's so many other right. things. But that was kind of what I talked about at that point. If you were to define, what are the core themes that define a Japanese video game apart from other games in the genre what what is it that makes a japanese game besides the fact that it was made ostensibly in japan by japanese people a japanese feeling game well gee that's what i was gonna say a japanese game is a game made in japan i think i think that maybe back in like the 1990s you you could have answered this question a little bit more concretely um and to point out that japan has this I mean, I guess the way to, to way to, the way to say it is this: Japan, as opposed to say the development of of stories in America, in in the Western world, speaking kind of very broadly here, pictures are considered to be for children. You know, if you're reading comics, if you're reading books with pictures in them, uh, historically, this was considered to be something that was for children, and then you would graduate up to um, books without pictures. And so we see the the development of storytelling, of, of literature in the West is very much driven by the written word. In Japan, not just in Japan, in many different places, but in Japan in particular, um, relevant to this discussion, we had the development of storytelling methods that used pictures, that blended words and pictures. And we see people engaging in this, uh, you know, through adulthood and going all the way back. I mean, you you can go back to woodblock prints and things like that. But, you know, primarily we're talking about the very robust uh, tradition of manga and uh, of comics and anime and uh, of animation. And that that when video games in the 1970s and 1980s, when the video game genre or the video game medium was being born, Japanese uh, adults that were creating these video games kind of lived in this world of manga of cartoons and um and it was it was it was a very big deal and it wasn't considered something that you you put aside after you uh went into middle school essentially right and so that i feel has a lot to do with uh japanese uh designers essentially embracing video games a little more and so that's that's when you when you start to see that like japanese game aesthetic of the of the you know 90s of the 8-bit or 16-bit eras you see a lot of people coming into Japanese games from a cartoon or graphic design background. You know, Miyamoto was a guy who drew cartoons versus American video games, the 80s and 90s, um, in which a lot of the people that were making the games, you know, because remember at this point, it's like if you found yourself making a video game, you didn't, there was no formal path for you to take to, to go there. You know, these days you literally can go to whatever, you know, all, all kinds of schools to learn about game design. Um, right. At the time in the 80s and 90s, we're talking about you, you found your way there haphazardly and a lot of the the major game designers of america were um programmers and so you had a lot of games where the aesthetic quality of the game was like programmer art 
you know, in some cases it just did not look very good. And uh, in, in Japan, you had this, you know, more beautiful aesthetic. And a lot of that is if you start to look at the people who were designing these games, they were coming from a from a background in cartooning or animation or something, something along those lines. And so that's kind of what you had in the early days. These days, I mean, I don't even know what you would say besides it's made in Japan, especially because the great game designers of today, the, the young people that are making video games today, and this is very new development, they are the people who grew up playing Japanese video right. games, and that is what has inspired their aesthetic. And so you see so many, especially indie video game makers, you know, in, uh, you know, in the West today, they're making games that look and feel like Japanese games because those are, because Japanese games are, they're the Beatles for them. You know, that's, that's exactly what they want to make. And so it's, it's a lot more difficult now to draw that kind of distinction and say, well, this is what Japanese games do that other games around the world don't do. It seems like the, the auteur in video games is much more prevalent in Japan than anywhere else. Obviously, you know, there are auteurs in the West too, Molyneux, others. But, you know, you really have like this handful of like Ueda, Kojima, huge names that have kind of defined like an entire generation of, of games and the, and the way they've felt. Um, you know, it's it's almost impossible to imagine Metal Gear without Kojima. You know, is that just a structural thing? Is that just the way that the video game companies are structured um, in Japan? Is it a cultural thing? Like, how did that happen? Yeah, I mean, certainly in Japan, there grew this culture of wanting to identify, you know, people people asking like, well, who is the great man who did this? You know, who is the person? You know, tell me the tell me the name of the person who did this. It is um, I, Hideo Kojima, who did this. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, you know, to some extent, you know, you do have these very auteur driven things. But the thing with Miyamoto, it's like, yeah, well, he he did he he did absolutely create Mario. He is absolutely a gameplay genius and he he deserves all of the um the respect that he has and the accolades that he's gotten because he actually is a very unique talent but for a very long time you know a lot of the people who were very talented and did a lot of stuff at Nintendo were completely anonymous and they're changing that now and really trying to define you know we're really trying to come to an understanding of well what did Miyamoto do but what did Miyamoto not do you know and who and 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 who also contributed some of the great lasting features of these games that we remember and who were the other people who worked on them and so to some extent i feel like it's because most developers end up being anonymous and but people keep asking well who's the guy and so it's like okay well it's this guy Shigeru Miyamoto okay well it's this guy Hideo Kojima and you have to wonder does that is that not a self-fulfilling prophecy you know like when they start talking about this one person who makes this game it's like well no like a hundred people made that game but when you start talking about that one guy does that one guy then become more important in the grand scheme of things and then can that one guy start getting his way more often within the company because he's the famous person and i felt like when kojima actually exited konami i felt like that was really the end of an era because i think that he was the last of the big sort of like auteurs who got to call the shots from within somebody else's publishing company where basically whatever crazy thing he wanted to do he got to do and i feel like there's nobody left like that anymore who just gets to do whatever kind of crazy thing they want, you know, within the confines of a traditional publisher. Everybody who wants to be an auteur now kind of has to strike it out on their own and and do an independent game because it's just too risky. It's just way too risky now to to be able to, to go to one guy and say, you're it. But I mean, I think that 
we you know we we had those gaming celebrities but mostly i mean it was really all they all came from the pc world because we're talking about miyamoto and kojima those are people who did games for essentially japanese consoles right and so we remember them from the 80s and 90s and we're like oh yeah that guy who did this stuff and the 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 similar analog type people from the 80s and 90s for the u.s were on the pc so your war inspectors and lord british and john romero and people like that of course some of them are still around but some of them you know effectively are not right i mean they're not really doing like major projects right now i think that like all of the like built up nostalgia that we have for these japanese games because i mean also really you know people stay at typically stayed at japanese companies for a long time right you know only only in the last like maybe 15 years did people really start like quitting and leaving and founding independent game developers so people would be very tied to one franchise but in the u.s it's like you know david jaffe did the first god of war and then he bounced right Mm -hmm. i mean he's not if david jaffe just kept doing god of war you know he could be considered uh, you know kind of maybe on that level you know what i mean but instead he kind of peaced out and was like i don't actually want to like kill myself making giant triple a productions anymore and and in fact if you look at god of war there's no one person anymore who's associated with it because they keep changing over the uh the producer and the director each that the the franchise is very famous but one person does not stick along with with that franchise for a long time it's very strange like how does somebody become the name i feel like it has less to do with the actual processes of the the making of the game and more just sort of like the the randomness of of the industry maybe the fact that the game industry now is people don't want to just stick with one series and work on that for their whole career you know i've been i've been playing persona 5 and and you know i got back into playing playstation through metal gear and i, I think we kind of maybe take it for granted I, I don't want to overstate the cultural differences by any means but i'm always sort of curious about why it is that japanese games translate so well in a lot of cases to the American market, despite seeming very culturally Japanese in various ways. I certainly think that Metal Gear, despite having a lot of American influences and American characters, strikes me as a very culturally Japanese game. And yet it's sort of one of the most impressive video game experiences of my childhood and now my adulthood. And I don't know if you if you just want to talk about like why you think the, the sort of translation from Pacific to over here works the way it does. Well, I mean, sometimes it doesn't, right? So, I, you know, it's it, it's a huge can of worms. Um, I mean, yes, yeah, some things I don't think would play here at all. You know, there there's a lot of, you know, typically there's always been these video game genres that are very popular in Japan that just don't work here. But uh, interestingly enough, one of them always, you know, you'd always say was uh, dating games or visual novels, um, which were very popular. And yet now that genre is starting to latch on here as well, um, both with things that are translated and with with stuff that's homegrown. So you can change uh, the, the culture around and you can get yourself to a point where something that, that people assume would never ever work in America. I mean, for a long time, people thought that, you know, Japanese role-playing games, period, would never work in America. And for, you know, a good couple of decades, they were correct. And But then now it's like... If, Persona 5 is, I'm, I'm sure, going to sell more copies in the West by far than it sells in Japan. And so that didn't happen overnight, and that didn't happen without a whole lot of work and essentially changing the minds of, you know, a whole generation or two of people. The whole, I mean, the process of localization, of bringing something from one territory to another can be 
you know, very easy or it can be totally fraught with peril. And even even today, I think that, you know, certainly in the past, I mean, if you look at games on the Nintendo Entertainment System or Super Nintendo that were brought over, they really felt like they they had to alter sometimes, you know, sometimes the whole game. I mean, they they took there was a there's a fighting game based on Ranma one half the anime that they were going to bring over here. And they completely changed the entire aesthetic of the whole thing. And they called it Street Combat. And they changed all the characters. They took out all the anime trappings of the whole thing. And it sucked. And then a couple of years later, the Ranma one half manga and anime were getting distributed in the US. So they just brought the next Ranma game for the Super Nintendo over by itself. You know, that's a very major change that that happened just in the period of a couple of years where they felt, oh, we don't actually have to do anything to this anymore. But now the, the thing is, so I think Japanese game makers for a long time labored under the impression that they'd make their game for Japan. And of course, they were making these games. Miyamoto, when he was making Donkey Kong, knew that he was making it because the American office wanted something that they could sell they needed a new game in America. And so Miyamoto was like, oh, well, we have the Popeye license and Americans like Popeye, so I'm to make a Popeye game. <laughs> and then they lost the Popeye license. And that's why Donkey Kong, I mean, there's literally an episode of Popeye where Popeye and, and uh, Bluto and Olive Oil are running around on a construction site, running around on girders. And people think that that's what Miyamoto was referencing. And so they changed the game into Donkey Kong characters, but he made Donkey Kong for America. He had never been to America. He had absolutely no idea what America was like. But when he was making it, he was thinking, oh, this has to sell in America. So that's what I'm going to make. And of course, it was a profoundly Japanese game <laughs> and struck people as that even at the time they were like, there's books from the 80s, which just like, what a wacky Japanese game this is. And so, uh, you know, with like Final Fantasy, you know, again, like, uh, Hironobu Sakaguchi making Final Fantasy, he wanted the West to buy these games. And so subconsciously, he's making these games, trying to make them global products. But but that's but but today, I mean, today, it's not just like a Japanese guy who's never been to America sitting in Japan thinking what I wonder what Americans want today. It's it's depending on the publisher, depending on the developer, it's much more of a globalized process of conceiving these games in a way that's going to work worldwide, of talking to the American branch of the company, of talking to the American fans, of figuring out we're going to make a product that's really going to be a, a worldwide type of product. And so when you're wondering why Persona why does it seem to translate so well? Probably because from the concept standpoint, they were thinking, well, I mean, we're probably going to sell more of these things in America than we're going to sell in Japan. So we should definitely make sure that this is something that we're going to be able to localize effectively and that it's not going to essentially cause us to run into any problems when we try to bring it over there. That's pretty fascinating to hear. That sounds exactly like the opposite of how I know the anime industry to work. The anime industry, I feel like, is has a hard time thinking that globally or like thinking of producing series with that sense of like, what do Americans want? <laughs> I don't know that that much anime that's produced that way. So it's interesting to hear that framework about the Japanese video game industry. I mean, even, even Final Fantasy 15. I mean, can you imagine like, you know, with Final Fantasy 15, they put out that demo and they collected all the player data and had the whole survey and they tweaked the game and they tweaked the combat system based on what players were saying. And a lot of it was really oriented towards the American fans because they know what side their bread is buttered on now. And then that's going to be most of the sales are going to are going to come from outside of Japan. They sold five million of Final Fantasy 15 or more, five, six million, but it didn't even bust one million 
in Japan, which is just a complete and total inversion of what it was in the 90s. What about the other way around? What types of Western games tend to sell well or resonate when they make the jump to Japan? Historically, they never have. You know, it's just never, they've brought them out, and but you've never really had a lot of Western games doing well in Japan. And that's actually starting to change now as a percentage of the games that are sold. Really fascinating. So we had the biggest selling PlayStation 4 games in Japan, okay? This was from last year. But this is like all of the PlayStation 4 games that were sold in Japan. The fourth best-selling PS4 game in Japan is Call of Duty Black Ops 3. And you also <laughs> see on the top 10 list Fallout 4, Grand Theft Auto 5, Star Wars Battlefront. And what has happened this generation is that as a percentage of the games that are getting sold to console... I mean, first of all, what happened this generation in Japan was that console purchases dropped like a rock, right? Like very few, not as many people anymore are buying consoles. But also the number of games that are coming out for those consoles also dropped. So instead of like tons and tons and tons of, you know, AAA Japanese products coming out on the consoles, um, now it's, 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 it's much fewer games. But uh, console players have this voracious appetite to play content. And eventually, Japanese players who always kind of turned up their nose at American games are like, why don't we try one of these games? <laughs> and, and the next thing you know, I mean, basically like, on this list, there's Metal Gear Solid 5. Oh, excuse me, Knack. You know, that is that is a Japanese game. But Metal Gear Solid 5, 425,000 units. Call of Duty Black Ops 3, 310,000 units. This is from last year again. But like, oops, like we woke up one day and suddenly American games, PlayStation 4, are rivaling the sales of Japanese games within Japan. And it's, it's, the, it's shooters, it's Grand Theft Auto, it's Fallout. But of course, these games are not popular because you know these games sell 300,000 units it's like well that's great but really a lot of this is what it is saying is that the the console market in Japan fell off a cliff because mm -hmm. most players in Japan have shifted to mobile at this point mm -hmm. and that's your Japanese games these days like the, uh -huh. the the really Japanese things which we get a lot of are the gacha based uh mobile games where you know it's very heavily you know based around collecting and you know what you're collecting monsters and um you know strategy battles and then combining the cards you collect to get more monsters and then spending ten thousand dollars a day and all that kind of stuff <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say I, I played Hatoful Boyfriend, the, oh, yeah. the visual novel where you attend a school full of anthropomorphic birds and you romance them and you befriend them. And it's sort of a strange premise, but it's fun. I played that for PS4, although I think it's available on mobile also. But maybe you've already answered the question. I was going to ask whether there had been any backlash to American games making more of an impact, whether there was any worry about losing, I don't know, the essence of the Japanese game. I Well, in certain circles, there kind of is, but I, mm -hmm. I don't know how impactful this is. When Final Fantasy XV came out, it was flooded with negative Amazon reviews in Japan, people saying, this isn't a Final Fantasy, this is a Western game. You know, because it's an open world game, because, you know, everything is really very based on Western RPG sensibilities. Well, it's just, again, it's a self-selecting sample. It's just the Japanese fans who wanted to go online and complain about things. So I don't know if they represent the populace at large, but there were... Yeah. You know, multiple, it, was, it, it got one star review bombed on Amazon from people saying, this is not a Final Fantasy, this is a Western game. You made a Western game. And, you know, in a sense, they're they're right. But, but it's also like the only path forward at this point for Japanese AAA games. Like, and, and this question is going to have to get answered. Like, 
is there a way because what happened with Japanese AAA is that they basically sat out a generation like it was not good for Japan on the PlayStation 3 and the Xbox 360 for like a whole laundry list full of reasons with the PlayStation 4 Japan is starting to get its groove back like it, it figured out it solved a lot of the problems that it had and now you're seeing a lot of very successful worldwide Japanese games on PlayStation 4 but then the question is do these games have to change themselves and appeal to Western design sensibilities? Is that the only way forward for Japanese AAA is to essentially make something in Japan, but with the idea that most of the people who buy it are going to be in America? And if we're talking about the PlayStation 4, like that's definitely the case. I mean, the PlayStation 4 sales in Japan are very low. And so, I mean, especially compared to the rest of the world. And so if you're a Japanese game developer at this point, you're really, you're looking to the West as where the money is coming from and you got to start asking yourself like should we make games but then you know if you keep doing that eventually somebody is going to come up with something novel again and i mean i think if you look at nintendo always sort of seems to show up right at the moment where people need to have like the path illuminated for them and i think yeah. that what's happened with zelda breath of the wild and that that nintendo was like we're gonna make an open world zelda but they so beautifully reimagined and rethought and reinvented the concept of the open world game that they created something that feels like a new genre and i think that nintendo doing that has been probably i think there's a lot of game designers right now playing breath of the wild and and thinking that they should rip that off wholesale which they which they should and so <laughs> i think that that shows you that like that having a different way of thinking coming from a different culture approaching if you're a japanese game developer you don't, you don't have to just make your game feel like a ubisoft game you know and you can you can do something that plays in that sort of western open world type genre but then does something very unique with it as well and so i think that's a good indicator that like there's there's still a lot to be done yet again i think you've anticipated my question because i was going to close by asking if there were good examples of games that have synthesized the two disciplines and come up with something new and better in some ways and breath of the wild seems like a, a good example of that because you could I would say so yeah you could say that maybe there was an advantage to having two different design philosophies and each one could look to the other and get ideas and incorporate them and and maybe that has what happened and we're heading toward this hybrid model that kind of takes the best of both worlds and if that's breath of the wild then i like it and i want more yes <laughs> unfortunately to sit back and just say okay now everybody make a breath of the wild is kind of <laughs> right ridiculous <laughs> yeah Okay, well, you can read much more about this subject in Chris's book, Power Up, How Japanese Video Games Gave the World an Extra Life. You can find him writing and editing at Kotaku, and you can find him on Twitter at Kobun Heat. Chris, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. I said last week that we were going to take questions on Twitter just briefly at the end of an episode. If you have questions for us, we're just going to do one this week, but send them to Achievement Pod. This week's question have any of you played The Witcher 3? And if you have thoughts about the game, I have not played The Witcher 3. I have no excuse. It's inexcusable. Can you share any thoughts? Sure. I mean, I did. I actually, because I felt like it was a huge hole in my uh, video gaming, yes. I downloaded it about three months ago and I'm very, very slowly working my way through it. I think, you know, I've had uh, multiple people tell me if you like Skyrim, you'll love The Witcher 3 because it's a better Skyrim. I mm -hmm. loved Skyrim. I think The Witcher 3 is very good. It's combat wise, it's better. 
graphics wise, you know, it's it's good. There's something off about it to me, but it's very good. I, the the sex stuff in it is weird, and you can like look that up on your own. Like some of the, yeah. like the love scenes are just like it's just bizarre, like weird late night Skinamax kind of like uh, magical sex scenes. Mm-hmm. Um, and those kind of like, you know, those are a little off-putting in a strange way, but it is, I, it's a very good game and I'm working my way steadily through it. I'll have more to say about it as I get further into it. All right. So keep questions coming to Achievement Pod. That is it for today. Jason, I hope you make it safely to LA and find a Nintendo much. Switch waiting for you. And Justin, thanks for uh, coming on again. Thanks. Thanks, guys. 